0: and we had business in Corinth. You know, had uh, some kind of business that involved travel and where they might happen to be in uh, where, where Paul, they could meet with Paul. And if that's the case, her people might be business associates, might be employees, you know, or, or something like that. But whoever Chloe was, she's obviously known to the Christians at Corinth. Just refer to her. They know who she is. Paul knows who she is. Chloe's people. I, I heard one preacher make a compelling point about chloe it really doesn't matter and here is this point it really doesn't matter who chloe was her people are everywhere (laughs) chloe's people are everywhere no matter where you go chloe's people will be there to give you the straight scoop on what's really going on at the church especially if it has to be related in hushed tones. And what they're reporting is a church, in this case, divided by loyalties to various Christian leaders, Paul himself among them. And when you, you think about this, you can understand why some would feel a particular loyalty to Paul. I mean, he founded the church. He, he spent a year and a half there. Uh, but after Paul came Apollos and all the biblical clues... Uh, lead us to believe that Apollos was a uh, more gifted orator, more gifted speaker than Paul. Uh, Paul, by his own admission, and according to his critics, right, was uh, not an overwhelmingly impressive speaker. Although you, when I read Acts, and you know, you get the actual sermons of Paul and Acts, it doesn't seem so unimpressive to me. But he himself says, and, and his critics said, he wasn't that great of a, of a of a speaker uh so when apollos comes along and he is you know he he is an orator and he's apparently trained you know as a you know as a, as a rhetorician you know and as an arguer you know as a you can see why some might well no we're fans of apollos he's he's way better than than paul he's you know he's easy on the ears he can he can keep your attention paul you know it's verified, somebody fell asleep on him, fell out of a window, right? He's, you know. <laughs> Cephas is the Aramaic equivalent of Peter, and it very well may be, it, it's not certain, but it very well may be that that uh, Peter also visited Corinth after Paul's departure, and, and so some may have preferred the teaching of Peter, and exalted, not just liking him as a teacher, but exalting him above the others so that Well, you know, while there's no hint at all that any of these were at odds, and of course I'm leaving out Christ now, you know, the party of Christ, he's obviously not one of the teachers at Corinth, but somehow people were identifying with Christ in distinction from the others, you know, saying, so there's no hint that there's any kind of argument or theological differences between between Peter and and Paul and, and Apollos, there's nothing like that, but they're so they weren't at odds with one another but the people who identified with these various factions within the church were at odds with one another somehow and considered themselves superior uh, to others based on their allegiances or you know who they who they followed you know being a fa- being a favorite of their being a follower of their favorite made them better people better christians better more sophisticated more right more advanced And it strikes me that while Paul does, he really does mean to put an end to these divisions. It's not just the divisions, when we follow his argument, it's not just the divisions he means to rid the church of. He's going for something bigger than that. Uh, He's going for a change of thinking that it will address the problem of divisions, But it's also a change of thinking that's going to be much wider in application than can't we all get along. If they buy what he's saying, it's going to solve more problems than just the divisions. Because he kind of goes underneath. It's not just can't we all get along. Uh, He basically argues that when people get big, in your eyes... In their own eyes. When people get big, Christ gets small. And that's a problem, whether there are divisions in the church or not. It's likely to manifest itself in, in you know, divisions. But that's not the only manifestation of, of that problem, as, as you see as you work through the book. In, in other words, if there were if at Corinth there were no party of Apollos. there's nobody saying, I follow Apollos. And there's no group of people that says, we're we're followers of Cephas. And there's no party of Christ that somehow sets itself off from the others. Instead, there were just an all-unified church that referred to themselves as Paulinists. You know, we're we're the followers of Paul. I, I think he would have been equally horrified. You see what I mean? It's not just the problem of divisions. It's or if they had become the other way too. If they had become the perfectly the church at Corinth there had become the perfectly unified first see church of Corinth. Or the uh, or the church of Apollos at Corinth all counting themselves Apollonist Christians. We're Apollonist Christians, all of them. There's no division. There's nobody fighting with anybody. I think his counsel would have been the same. (laughs) Because for Paul, when people get big, Christ gets small, and that's a problem. And it's a problem that manifests itself in a divided church but there are other manifestations as well. As you see, working through the book. In uh, this thing of leaders, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas and Paulus and so forth. I have always, and this is from my, as long as I can remember, I didn't recently come to this. I think uh, I think I was like this from the very beginning of, near the beginning of my Christian life when I started learning things. I have always been uncomfortable with the idea of having the pastor's name on the church sign out in front of the property. I mean, and maybe that's the way to go church growth strategy-wise. Maybe that's the thing to do. People go to hear Chuck Swindoll. People go to hear, you know, uh, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, whoever. So the way to promote the church is to promote the pastor, because it is a truly it is a truly proven fact that when the pastor gets big the church gets big there's no denying that that's proven so the idea is let's promote the pastor leverage his popularity into church success it goes without saying we don't even have to try to do it it just happens when the church when the pastor gets big the church gets big so the pastor's name goes on the sign one year at dallas seminary i noticed in the student directory i didn't know this fellow he wasn't in my class he came along afterwards but i noticed looking through the student directory you know and uh, there was a, a guy with the last name of boring i thought what an unfortunate name for a pastor you know what <laughs> You know, can you imagine that on a church sign? Pastor Dan, boring. It's like, you know, what does that say? It's like, it's too late for us, but you can save yourself. Don't visit, don't come. (laughs) Pastor Dan, boring. You know, it's the perfect pastor for bored again Christians, right? I mean, when I saw it, it was one of the few times I've been thankful to have my last name instead of someone else's. (laughs) We, we lived in Mesquite, Texas, one of the communities around around Dallas. Just outside the interstate loop, you know, like cities have. Even Knoxville has a most of one, you know, part of one. A loop that goes around the city, and it's right outside the, that loops. And right there, we lived just past one of those, uh, just past a, a loop. So right there where I-80 intersected the I-635, the loop that went around, there was one of those... Um, Big. You see it in larger cities. Uh, one of those big, and they had several of them in Dallas. But these big clover leaves, you know, where they, these interstates, you know, intersect. These interstates intersect, and you have this, these uh, just a maze of exits, uh, you know, exits and entrance ramps and everything. One, two, three, four layers high. You know, they're, just, they're way high, lifted up, and you, and uh, you, from above, it looks like a four-leaf clover. And the signs for gas stations and hotels, food places were, I mean, they're high. You know, you got, you might, you know, some people going up on the fourth level up there and you look up and see the sign, Exxon, Chevron, Texaco, McDonald's and things like that. Well, just outside, and this was fairly close to where we live Mesquite. We're just on the other side of that cloverleaf. Just outside that cloverleaf, almost inside it, was this little church building it seemed like it it wasn't inside it it was outside it but you just remembering it i wondered how they didn't have their property taken when they built that big interchange how how did they hold on to that property it was right it was right there and just in my memory and just seeing it as a you know zoom by in the interstate coming you know from dallas and out to mesquite where we lived and just coming out as in my memory and seeing it from the interstate it seemed like, in terms of the building, our building here would be way bigger. This tr- facility would be pretty much bigger than that one. But on their property, they had one of those interstate highway style, illuminated from the inside signs that just, w- like up there with exxon and chevron texaco and mcdonald's and cracker you know all those big signs you know the you know the kind you see them from an exit away you see you see them a mile and a half before you get there and on the name of the sign up there it said the name of the church and underneath it said pastor jimmy smith in letters that had to be 10 feet tall did you ever put up a sign you know you if you've ever put up a sign on anything you think those are huge letters. You put it up there, say it looks you can't even read it. These are huge, huge letters. You know, if that sign were to have fallen off, it, the, the sign was big enough to c- completely cover and crush the church down under. You know, <laughs> it was huge. And I love that their pastor, Jimmy Smith, and as a pastor in training, I passed that and I thought. Wow, that is some job security there. You know, he so said, We can't get rid of Pastor Jimmy. Look at, we got so much invested in that sign, you know, it's fifty-eight thousand dollars for this sign up there. If we're gonna if we have we have to find another pastor named Jimmy Smith or get someone will name, change his name to Jimmy Smith or something. You know, it wasn't like I mean it was in the in the glass, in the plastic or whatever that is. It wasn't like those, uh, you know. I've seen on many other. You've seen them too. More modest church signs where they they've got the little hooks on the bottom and got the pastors on the name is on the hanging on the bottom, you know. Easily replaced. <laughs> it wasn't like that. the pr- The practice is so common. I, I I'll have to tell you there have to be some wonderful churches i mean there really there just has to be and i'm not saying like there'd be the ex- exception and there'll only be a few there have to be some wonderful churches with the pastor's name on the sign and there have to be some wonderful pastors some really good communicators good leaders better shepherds than the one you have you know that, whose name is on the sign But nevertheless, you know what thought typically comes to mind when I see the pastor's name on the sign? For me, I think about 1 Corinthians, and I wonder why the person with the gift of help's name is not on the sign. I mean, the one who's really making it go. (laughs) The one who's making that church work. Or why not the person gifted in mercy? Or why not the one who has the gift of hospitality, or the one who has the spiritual gift of faith, or the one with the gift of giving? Sometimes the person with the spiritual gift of giving, their name is on something. It might not be the church sign, but their name's on something. But why not? You know, why don't any of these churches sort of rotate whose name is on the church sign? The prayer warrior whose prayers are actually powering whatever ministry the church has. Why is it, ironically, as we consider 1 Corinthians, why is it always the tongue whose name is on the sign? Not the calloused hands, not the calloused knees. Now those kinds of questions, if you know 1 Corinthians a little bit, Those kinds of questions most naturally arise out of 1 Corinthians 12 and following the gifts and about the gifts that are not considered great. You get to receive the higher honor. But here in 1 Corinthians 1, the concern would be uh, be careful with that because when people get big, Christ gets small and... uh, when Christ gets small, nothing nothing good happens after that. Nothing good happens going down that path. Robin and I have both seen another church sign east of Dallas, and it's one neither one of us will ever forget. It's not that I-81. It's that one on I-30 a little further north, of but on the way out of town going east, uh, that you'd see east of Dallas. It's a billboard. It wasn't really a church sign in front of a church. It was a billboard. You know, once again, an interstate billboard. Pretty big. Big. And it was advertising for a new huge church. It was founded by a highly successful evangelist who at the time was one of the hottest things going. Kind of a prosperity, name it and claim it, charismatic fellow uh, by the name. I'll tell you his name. His name is Larry Lee, L-E-A, Larry Lee. And the billboard was almost filled with a script, you know, with a, you know, a script font, and it said Larry Lee Presents, like it was the name of a television show or something, Larry Lee Presents, and the way it was kind of slanted from the lower to the upper, you know, kind of went up this way, like you'd write a note, it left a little spot down on the lower right, and in much smaller letters and a little bit different font, it said, Jesus, Jesus. Larry Lee presents Jesus. Name a church. When people get big, Christ gets small, and problems follow. And in that particular case, they did fairly quickly. Catastrophic and fatal ones, really, to, to the church. Whose name would have been on the church sign at Corinth? Well, as it turns out, that would have been occasion for a good church fight. That was the fight, in fact. There wasn't any sign. Several years ago, here in our own area, There was a church with a pastor who felt embattled, and who, in fact, was embattled. It wasn't just his perception, and this was a problem. And so the solution became to have all the leaders, and all the elders, and all the Sunday school teachers, and everybody who's serving in a volunteer capacity in any kind of role, to sign an oath of loyalty to the pastor. And most did. But some didn't, and those who didn't were expected to withdraw from their role, at least their volunteer role, their function at the church. And on a certain Sunday, those Sunday school teachers who didn't sign, those adult Sunday school teachers, other Sunday school teachers who didn't sign the oath of loyalty to the pastor found the doors of their classrooms locked. And it went downhill from there. (laughs) When people get big, Christ gets small. And when Christ gets small, nothing good comes going down that path. And that's true in your church. And it's true in your family. It's true in the really the confines of your own life. <laughs> When people get big, Christ gets small. Whether it's hero worship or whether it's even yourself who gets big. Paul's argument in these verses I read, and you read too, is that the work of God is not driven by anything that powers the great works of man it doesn't work like that it doesn't work the same way that great organizations become great or great businesses or great nations or great empires in the world how do great things get to be great you need great human talent you need cream of the crop people. You need natural leaders. You need top of the line breeding and background. You need, you need people who have been raised for greatness, educated for greatness. You, need dyna- you It's good to have dynastic families who produce and prepare such people. You need powerful people. You need people with political clout. You need people with deep pockets. You need people that are the kind of people, because who they are, what they can do, what they have, can make things happen. You need beautiful people to whom others are drawn. You need smart people. People who impress other people. Basically, you need A-list people. A-list Need people destined for fame, for fortune. And You need people the cameras love, and then greatness follows. Paul is basically saying, and I know I'm, you know, I'm interpreting here. I'm interpreting here, but I, he's basically saying, is there anything? Listen, church at Corinth. Listen, is there anything about God's work? through Christ or in the gospel or in his work and through this church and in and through this church that makes you think that's how he works too? Is there anything about it that makes you think that's how he works? To do something great, does he go for the brightest and best? Does he need to save some of the brightest and best so they can get him to this thing he's doing? Does he go for the most powerful, the most influential, the most talented, the smartest, the richest, the most well-bred? And Paul's argument is not only is that not his methodology, his method seems to be the exact opposite. He, he magnifies his glory by choosing and using the weak The people who have no special place in society other than maybe the bottom. The despised. Those regarded as foolish. He manifests His glory through the D-list. That seems to be how He operates. A-list, not so much. Philosopher Socrates, kind of Plato among his disciples. Who did, who did Jesus choose as his disciples? Fishermen. Uneducated fishermen. Could any of those guys have gotten into Harvard? Or could any of those guys gotten into the school of Gamaliel? Paul said, you know, he basically says here, and this is an interpretation why are you making so much of particular human leaders and he says later on look around you look around you from where you are now you picture i picture the church of corinth gathered and listening to this letter being read you know from paul he says look around consider all these guys you're making much of consider the talent pool from which they arose <laughs> for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. He's saying to this church gatherer, he said, let's face it, folks, when we all leave here today, when you leave here today, there's not going to be anybody outside uh, hoping to catch a glimpse of you or trying to get your autograph. It's true for us as well, isn't it? Now, there's an important letter in that verse. You know, not many of you were consi- are wise according to worldly standards, powerful, noble birth. The important letter is the letter M. Not many doesn't mean not any. God does save the up and outer sometimes too. He's not a respecter of persons. He's not biased against either the poor and lowly nor is he biased against the rich and powerful but but from a purely human perspective it's easy to see the difficulty of the a-list people coming to christ for salvation isn't it it's it's easy to see because you can't come with your accomplishments you can't come with your merit you can't come with your breeding you can't you know you don't come with that well you come with your sin you when you come to christ uh, for salvation you come you bow the knee and you receive what you could have never gained on your own you present yourself as someone in need and you have to humble yourself it's it's not a con- it's never a confirmation of human greatness i'm so smart i figured out this is the you know i'm so wise i'm so this i'm so that it's a repudiation of human greatness you say i i've got nothing before god and if the world considers you a great person and if you consider yourself a great person you know, to become a Christian well once again look around you you have to consider what the, this group is that you're becoming one of you know you're i have to be like you stand in shoulder to shoulder with people that you think less of if you consider yourself a great person Think I'm one of these? Oh, well, what's the answer? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. So it's hard for the rich and for the powerful and the famous to see themselves that way. But even when God saves someone who is a real somebody in this world, is that is that a strategic get on God's part? Do the angels of heaven exult more cuz they got a real we got a good one here. He's one of he's a somebody in this world. What a key get. When when we were in Dallas uh, Well, let me just say, let me just in case you don't not following me. I'm going to say no. <laughs> no. They're not a key get. The angels of heaven do not exult more because it's someone famous and someone influential and someone, you know, who will be a real asset in the kingdom and not, you know, one of the others, one of the normals. When we were in Dallas, a large church downtown with a long history. By the way, Sharon, it's already noon. I'm not done. So... Uh, <laughs> When we were in Dallas, a large church downtown with a long history—you know, it wasn't just a newly minted megachurch or anything. Long history was heavily promoting an upcoming worship service at which Raphael Septien was going to be baptized and become the 20,000th member of that church. Now, this church—this church had a weekly attendance of around 50—I uh, mean, around 5,000 people—and they were saying he's the 20,000th member. that would be a clue to what kind of church it was. I'm not going to say. So what was so special about Raphael Septien other than him being the 20,000th member of that church? Well, he was the kicker for the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) He was the kicker for the... And it was even on the news. It was even on the news upcoming that Raphael Septien, this were kind of glory years for the Dallas Cowboys, uh, this... Raphael Septian, kicker of the Cowboys, is going to be the 20,000th member at this church. I mean, what a great get. I mean, you're talking about a significant conversion here. I doubt heaven got more excited because it was the kicker for the Cowboys (laughs) and not the person who uh, trimmed his hedges and not the person who made his bed at at his home, you know clean the house. Now in fairness, in fairness to the pastor at that church, I read a pretty good pastor's manual he wrote based on his 50 plus years in ministry, and in it he wrote that when you make a home visit, always include and this is what he said, always include the domestics as a part of your visit. By which he meant Say a word to the butler, say a word to the driver, say a word to the cook, right? Say something, include the gardener, ask him how he's doing. But I think for me it means when I go to your house and visit you, I should pet the dog, (laughs) right? Always include the domestics. Celsus was a second century Greek philosopher and a vigorous opponent of Christianity, and, he, and uh, a critic of Christianity. And ironically, his works survive only in quotations uh, by the Christian writer, pastor, you know, theologian Origen who wrote against him and quoted him in his work. And that's the only way we know what Celsus ever wrote and said. But we've got a pretty good idea of it. And one of Celsus' central arguments against Christian faith was who's drawn to it. Let me read a couple of statements. Typically, he says they are, quote, workers in wool and leather, fullers, and persons of the most uninstructed and rustic character. He says, you know, know, people have to work with their hands because, you know, they can't do anything else. Not smart enough. They are, quote, the Christians, quote, are able to gain over only the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children. Sorry, women and children, that's what he said. He's a pagan Roman philosopher. What are you going to do? He says the Christians are, quote, only foolish and low individuals, persons devoid of perception, and slaves, and again, and women and children. (laughs) You know, you see his argument there. He said, look at the sorts of people who are joining him. What more do you need to know? You don't want to be part of that. Seventeen centuries later, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, this is just a straight-out quote, Look at whom they worship, this God they worship. How foolish and imbecilic to follow one who died and then claim that death is victory. There is foolishness, and there is foolishness. There is madness, and there is madness. But to call death victory is the ultimate ultimate madness of all. This is a pathetic deity, and he is followed by a pathetic people. Here's what Nietzsche misses, of course. And he misses it because he did not have ears to hear the gospel, nor did he want them. You know, you can call us pathetic if you want. You'll uh, you'll be unkind if you'd want to do that. They're pathetic, those people, those Christians. You'll be unkind. You'll be ungenerous. You'll probably overstate the case, but there also might be an aspect of truth in it. But that makes our God all the greater. And because of Him, verse thirty, because of Him. <coughs> You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When people get big, Christ gets small, but when people see themselves as they are, uninflated, without self-flattery, without hero worship that's so universal among us sinners, without self-justification, without excuse, they're able to see Christ as he is, and he has never, well, he has been small, but he is not small. He has the name above every name. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. He's wisdom from God. He's righteousness for the sinner, he's sanctification for the defiled, he's redemption for the condemned. He's everything He's everything in any church and in every and in any life uh, that will bow the knee and to him as Savior and Lord. Well, let's pray. Uh, loving Father in heaven a correctness in any place in our thinking and doing in which people have become big and Christ has become small. Whether it be in hero worship or in the bias of class distinction or whether we ourselves in our own minds have become too big, our own wills, our own desires, our own ambitions, our own wrongly discerned, narrow and immediate interests have become too big so that Christ become small, let us see ourselves as we are and Christ as he is. May we not live for ourselves something small, but for Christ, who's everything. May we lose our lives for him and in him that we may take them up again in him. Strengthen the faith of the believing in this place. And let faith be born in the unbelieving but willing heart, we pray. In the all-powerful name of Jesus, amen.